Hey, Better Product listeners, we're doing something a little different today. As a bonus, over the next few weeks, we will be resharing past interviews with speakers who will be presenting at our Better Product Speaker Series. If you haven't heard the plug, this five-week speaker series will be bringing you into the room with industry-leading product professionals to hear countless product insights. If you haven't signed up yet, be sure to grab your spot. You can register by going to betterproduct.community forward slash speaker dash series. And if that's too long of a link to remember, just go to our community site to get connected. This week's episode is centered around product-led growth, a term growing in popularity among companies you may not expect. Christian and I had a chance to go to the Product-Led Growth Summit, and it was great to see not only how B2C companies are implementing this, but really B2B, specialized SaaS. There's a lot of strategy involved in product-led growth that you can apply to lots of different industries and lots of different products. Yep. And so today we've got Blake Bartlett on the show, and he's with OpenView Venture Partners. And he won't ever claim this, but I believe he may have been the person who really spearheaded or invented the term product-led growth. So we're very excited to have him on the show because he's a true thought leader, as well as OpenView in general, uh, on the front lines of uh, product-led growth. OpenView is a venture capital firm. We're based in Boston. Uh, The firm's been around since 2006. Um, and really our sort of claim to fame or our specific focus is that we exclusively invest in SaaS companies um, or B2B software, we say. So SaaS and infrastructure. Um, and it's been that way since day one. And we're also very specific about the stage that we invest. So we invest at the expansion stage. So think of after product market fit, some initial customers, some initial revenue, you're raising a series A, series B, uh, most likely, and looking to really build out the organization around this product market fit um, that you're experiencing. With that context in our minds, we asked Blake to really just start at the beginning. Why is PLG proliferating through the product community? And where did this term even come from? So the the backstory on it is going back to 2016. I think everybody has observed, uh, which is that software has fundamentally shifted. And you see all these dynamics where if you see, you know, like a Slack or a Dropbox or a Zoom and the way that those products are being adopted inside organizations, it looks very different than the way that, you know, the early days of SaaS a couple decades ago uh, was ultimately sold and distributed. And certainly the earlier days of more enterprise on-prem software in the 80s and 90s. And so we saw this in our portfolio uh, with companies like Datadog and Expensify and Calendly. And we were really trying to under- unpack what was going on with these businesses because uh, they were performing uh, incredibly well, uh, both in terms of fast growth, but also very capital efficient. Um, they were growing faster than your average startup, but they weren't burning more money. And so we were kind of scratching our head and saying, well, what is the special sauce here? So what was the special sauce? As astute as our listeners are, I'm sure you're all saying product-led growth, and you'd be right. You see, these companies weren't relying on salespeople to sell and distribute more of the product. Rather, the product seems to be selling itself in more of a self-service model. Many would think of this as the freemium model, and that's where they'd be wrong. Pricing alone and a pricing strategy doesn't explain the success of Slack and why it's a $12 billion public company today. There has to be something more. And so what we saw at the core of these companies was a default motion to solve problems with product, including and especially customer-facing growth problems. So for Blake, the conversations he was having went from questions like, how many sales reps do we have to hire? Or how much do we have to increase our marketing budget by to hit our goals? And instead started to become questions more like, how can we optimize conversion from a particular part of the product journey? Wait. So what is product-led growth? Well, let's take a listen and find out. Product-led growth is a go-to-market strategy that relies primarily on the product itself 
to drive customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. When you say product-led growth or you're talking to the companies you're investing in, do you say it in a term where you say, I, you have to have a, a product-led growth strategy or do you have a strategy where product-led growth is a part of sales and marketing or, or is it a, is a sort of like the overarching strategy or a part of a larger strategy? The overarching strategy is product-led growth. So you lead with product. Uh, marketing kind of can enhance and uh, drive lead flow into a product funnel. Um, and then sales um, comes in later, right? So product leads and sales follows. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, I think a great example to look at is just take a classic example I think most listeners will be familiar with, which is Slack, right? And think about the question of how did your company adopt Slack? And what I can guarantee is that it was not because a sales rep at Slack cold called an executive at your company and said, you should buy some Slack. It also wasn't because um, similarly, an executive at your company was walking the halls of a trade show and came upon the booth for Slack and said, what is this thing? Uh, and was ultimately thrown into a sales process and convinced through an ROI calculator to buy Slack for your whole organization. That's not how it happened. So how it did happen was that some individual employee at your company Jane or Joe or John, somebody just heard about it and started using it with their team. And pretty soon, that self-service motion with a small little team inside your organization became a company-wide phenomenon where everybody is no longer internal emailing one another, but instead communicating over Slack and sort of growing the usage through integrations and all those kinds of things. But if you read Slack's S1, uh, when they filed to go public, it very clearly talks about their sales team. But it also talks about the role of that sales team, which is that it calls into and leverages the existing uh, self-service adoption inside organizations in order to accelerate um, additional adoption uh, inside an enterprise, perhaps, or to sell additional um, sort of features and functionality and, and advanced use cases for Slack. So um, product-led growth is not anti-sales. It's not anti-marketing, but it just looks a little bit different, right? Again, back to that thing I said at the beginning, which is that product leads and sales follows exactly like a Slack or a Dropbox or a Zoom um, that you would experience. When you say that that product leads and sales follows, you know, what is it, what does a model like that look like? So um, product leads means that the way, I, I guess the first starting point, and this is like a great lit, litmus test when you're looking at any company's website and say, is this a product-led growth company or not? If the call to action to the person visiting the website is call or request a demo, or talk to sales. That is very clearly, uh, you have to go through the sales process before you can even get exposure to the product. So that is a gate that exists between the person visiting the website and actually getting into the product. Conversely, if the call to action is get started now, or sign up for free, or log in here, or create an account with your Google credentials, or with your Slack credentials, or with your Salesforce uh, credentials, or something like that, and the call to action is apparently trying to drive you immediately into the product of just get started, just give it a try, then that's a pretty good initial signal that the starting point of this customer journey is more self-service oriented and more product-led rather than putting up this gate that you must talk to sales or must go through a marketing form from some gated content uh, before you can actually start seeing what this product is all about and experiencing the value for yourself. Well, is there something you know, categorically wrong with that in your mind uh, in terms of the contact for a demo or uh, startups that want people to talk to a sales rep first? Well, there's nothing categorically wrong with that. However, I would point to the fact that 
the buying dynamics are changing dramatically inside organizations of all shapes and sizes in all industries. Uh, and this is driven by proliferation of smartphones and you know, bring your own device and all that kind of stuff that we've heard about for a really long time. But it's also just by virtue of the fact that whether it's on our smartphone or whether it's on our, uh, you know, on our laptops, we can all, within a few clicks or taps, be using new software because there's browser extensions, there's a million Chrome extensions, right? And a lot of these are for business purposes. Um, but one click and boom, you're using new business software. Um, or if I need to get Expensify or manage my expense reports and I type in expense reports or expense reporting into the app store on my phone, on my iPhone, the first result that pops up is Expensify and a couple taps later, boom, I'm using enterprise software, but it didn't feel at all like enterprise software. So this dynamic has changed. So the, the barrier to entry, the barrier to access for any individual employee or an end user really inside any business to find a product that solves their own problem and to very quickly within a few clicks or taps start using that product and solving that pain or that problem that they have, usually for free because of a free trial or because of freemium, that has completely changed the dynamic where that is how software is adopted inside organizations today. And because of that dynamic, if you aren't catering to an end user who comes to your website and is looking to solve their pain, then you are alienating really the force that drives software adoption uh, inside organizations today. So it's not so much that it's flawed, but it's just really, I think that there's a dynamic where it will limit your ability to compete when all of your competitors uh, are going directly to the end user or really effectively who is the decision maker for organizations today. Let me say this back to you and see if you see if you agree with this or not. But it almost seems like the way that you're talking, it's as if there's you want to reduce any friction that exists between someone buying your software or someone starting to use their software. And it seems like product-led growth is effectively the strategy that is the best strategy to make sure that both of those things go away. And and look, this is not just me saying it. Again, if you go back to the most successful SaaS companies of the last decade uh, and you read um, these companies' S1s, the document that they filed to go public, this is how they describe their business. So like, I would encourage readers to go read the Atlassian S1, the Dropbox S1, the Slack S1, and they all talk about this. I mean, they will literally say that individual end users are increasingly choosing software inside their organization. Um, there's even some references to um, how BYOD, Bring Your Own Device, has now turned into and been and led to BYOS, Bring Your Own Software, Bring Your Own App, right? And so this is exactly what everybody else is recognizing. And so if you don't remove the friction, and if you don't embrace the end user, then somebody else will. And do you want to be disrupted in that way? Or do you want to be the one that's at the head of the, the innovation curve? What do you say to companies that say, you know, I can't do this. That's not, it's not possible for me to sell to the user or that just doesn't work in our industry. Yeah, I think that that is a common thing that I hear. Uh, and a lot of times it's mistaking the fact that you would expect that the executive is the person who would also be self-serving. And so if you sell to a C-level individual, that C-level individual is just never going to sign up for a self-service product, start using it, spread it virally amongst their organization, all of that kind of thing, because they just have bigger fish to fry, right? And so um, I hear this a lot for uh, an example for uh, security companies, right? Because security companies, oftentimes, um, they're all targeting the same exact persona, which is the chief information security officer, the CISO. 
And good luck if you're going to get a CISO to self-serve through a product and, you know, kind of get addicted to it, so to speak. But that the CISO is not the only person who has security in their title at the organization. And even if that CISO sponsors and buys a piece of software for their organization, they're not the ones with their hands on the keyboard actually using the product. So then the question becomes, who is the end user for your product and for your customer? And identifying specifically, not who's the executive that buys, but once the product's actually used on a day-to-day basis, who is that end user touching it? And how do they think about their own pain? Because there's always kind of a, almost like a photo negative of your software that you think about today and the executive persona that you think about as buying your software. There's always an inverse photo negative end user example of that exact product. So think of like Salesforce and CRM, right? Salesforce and CRM products, generally speaking, are sold to sales leadership, right? And there's that classic maxim that VPs of sales love Salesforce and every sales rep hates it. Because to the sales rep, Salesforce is just a data entry exercise and it's an extra step that stands between them and selling. And the only benefit is that it can tell my boss what my pipeline looks like. But that individual end user is the AE, the sales rep. They got all kinds of pain points, right? And so that's why you've seen a proliferation of sales productivity tools, whether it's something like an outreach or a sales loft or various different apps in order to make your workflow as a sales rep more effective, more efficient, and help you hit your number more effectively. And none of those things would really be very appealing to a VP of sales because, again, they have different problems they're trying to solve. And so I think taking that step back and identifying who is the end user of your product, what is their pain, how is it similar or probably different to the executive's pain, and how can you orient towards that pain that they have rather than towards you know trying to shoehorn self-service into an ROI calculator that will appeal to a C-level person? I'm imagining some of our listeners might be thinking is, oh, this is all great, Slack's huge and all that, but this doesn't work when you're in the very early stages. So even before OpenView, you're, before you're, uh, you're, you're, you're investing at the seed stage, and this is something we see, when you're really early and you're just trying to get anybody to buy a product, how do you sort of get that stage of a company to understand how to create a PLG strategy when the product is very immature uh, and they're very immature in the market? That's actually an area where I think product-led growth is easier than sales-led growth. Because, you know, what was like, rewind the tapes to five, 10 years ago, what was the hottest thing everybody was talking about? It was uh, in the startup world, it was the lean startup. And it was the idea of minimum viable product. And that being a a way to very quickly get to um, something of value that you can put in front of somebody who's going to use it and then iterate quickly from there. Now, a minimum viable product that's supposed to solve, uh, be something that would be uh, presented to an executive and solve a serious business challenge, and have an ROI calculator and an ROI story around it, there's a disconnect there, right? Because executives, they, again, very limited time, very limited bandwidth, limited budget, a million things asking for more budget, a million software vendors calling them. And if you're cold calling that exec with a minimum viable product that you just want to really iterate on, like, good luck, you know, they're going to hang up and, and go on to the next vendor and go on with their day. But a minimum viable product served up to an end user actually works because an end user oftentimes is just looking for a very quick fix and a quick solution to a very specific pronounced pain point that they have. And so you can solve that exact little pain point, almost like build a feature before you build a product uh, and then build another feature and then build another feature. And what do you know? Pretty soon you have an application 
then build some more functionality. And what do you know? Pretty soon you have a platform and so you can kind of boil the frog, so to speak, on the product, getting direct tactical or tactile, I should say, feedback from the end user right out of the gates because they're actually using your product. They're not waiting for the real version to be ready like an executive might. Well, I'm just going to keep giving you more objections, Blake. And it's not because I don't believe you, but I am just trying to see into the mind of the average listener and think, what are all the things that they're going to be checking? Because I want to make sure that we check those off while you're on this episode, because I think it'll be really helpful. But for those that are in industries that are highly specialized from, you know, say, you know, hospitals or, you know, biomedical or even manufacturing or trucking, it's easy for, for people in those industries to look at something like Slack and look at these S1s and the ones that go public and be like, oh, that's, that's just not the way our industry works. It's not as competitive. Uh, the bar is a little bit lower in our industry, that sort of thing. And so a lot of times, and, and Anna and I see this even with our experience, we actually see people hire salespeople to say, we don't need the product to do that. We need salespeople to do that. So um, with that sort of context, how do you see product-led growth working? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I definitely hear that feedback from people selling to, you know, I guess, quote unquote, traditional industries or old school industries uh, a lot of times. Um, and, and there's this sort of this, this perception or there's this kind of um, narrative of, well, we are, our industry is, um, you know, antiquated and they're, they're not early adopters, they're late adopters, you know, they're averse to technology. So we can't do the most cutting edge stuff um, because we're so far behind the curve. We have to do the antiquated stuff. We, we have to have the sales rep that goes there in person and that pitches in the conference room and, you know, shows the live demo and all that kind of stuff, which I understand where that's coming from. But again, the dynamics in the world has just fundamentally changed because if we take a traditional industry, like you mentioned trucking and manufacturing, or I would even say maintenance and facilities management or construction workers. I mean, all of those, uh, those are like go into the bucket of non-desk workers, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not sitting in front of their laptop all the time, oftentimes not living in email like a lot of us as knowledge workers do, but they do have a smartphone whether it's an iPhone or an Android device, basically everybody has a smartphone in their pocket right now. And if they have a non-desk job that's out in the field doing something tactical, and then they have a supercomputer in their pocket, that's actually a perfect equation for solving that person's specific, again, end user pain rather than the executive pain. So to give maybe a couple examples there, uh, and I'll just point to some companies of, uh, that, that I'm familiar with that are doing this well, let's take facilities management and maintenance management. So this is a space that's been around for forever. The largest player in the space um, is a product that's owned by IBM that's called Maximo. Um, and it's been around for forever. And it's, again, desktop-based. But there's this company out of LA that went through Y Combinator and has done incredibly well called Upkeep. And Upkeep, um, instead of orienting towards the director of facilities um, or the director of maintenance for a manufacturing organization or for a warehouse company or something like that, Instead of that, they go down to the actual facilities manager or they go down to the person who is dispatching the, the technicians who are going and actually fixing that device in the factory floor. They go to that person because that person knows that none of the technicians are coming back to their desk. They're always out there. And the communication workflow from desktop software to pen and paper process in the field is just completely broken. And so if you can orient that towards a product-led growth product that's distributed on the mobile app stores with messaging specifically for that facilities manager, specifically for that technician, rather than for the director of facilities in the corporate office, it completely changes the dynamic. 
And that dynamic is really around um, in that industry, they call it work orders. So how do we create a work order and how do I route that work order to the right technician? And then how do I close that thing out efficiently? And that's, again, a mobile first process, which is perfect for product-led growth if you're orienting towards that end user. And there are plenty other examples of, you know, what a company out of San Diego that's called Raken is doing for construction. And they've oriented around the actual, you know, guy or gal swinging the, ha- the hammer on the job site. And then at the end of the day, those folks have to write what's called a daily report that then goes to the general contractor and up the chain and all that kind of stuff. And building the daily report at the end of the day takes typically an hour and is a pain in everyone's butt. But Raken has automated that whole thing through a mobile first product that's directly oriented towards end users out in the job site who have smartphones in their pockets and so on and so forth, right? The the examples keep going if you orient towards that end user who oftentimes, again, has a mobile device in their pocket. I understand targeting the end user, the construction worker who's creating the reports, but how does that work uh, when they don't necessarily have the the, the purchasing uh, power to to actually buy the software? That's a really good point, and and that's where you know product led growth again back to one of your earlier questions is an overall organizing framework and strategy for your software business, not just a small component. So again, back up to that top level, what are all the various components, pricing and packaging? is one of those key components. And because we're oriented towards the end user, which another way to think about end users is consumers who are at work instead of at home, right? And what do consumers hate? They hate friction in the funnel. And they also hate bait and switches, right? If any of us had to swipe a credit card and pay up front, maybe even a year in advance for Netflix before we're ever able to see any of the content, or for like Apple Music or for Spotify, if we couldn't even like see what tracks are available and build a playlist and get a sense for what this thing is like, we would never swipe our credit card. We want to try before we buy. And we also want the funnel to get to that point of trying and experiencing value to be as frictionless and as efficient as possible. So that yields or that leads to, you know, what has to really exist for pricing and packaging in PLG is, is either a free trial so they can get experience of that value first, or in yours, really specific to your example and your question is a freemium orientation or a freemium product and pricing model uh, where you can start using it, you get the value out of it, and maybe you're not the budget holder. Um, but once it gets to, you know, if you're that construction worker, when it's just you, it's free. But once it gets to five other folks on the job site, and then it kind of bubbles up to the, you know, the foreman who's managing the job site, then the foreman is the one that has to pay. But hey, the foreman is also the one that owns the budget. Right. And so you can kind of use freemium pricing and you can kind of use where you place the paywall and the different ways you trip the paywall um, strategically to make sure that, you know, it only really happens once either A, the company or the customer is totally addicted to the product and it's delivering a bunch of value, or B, once the budget holder has been sort of invited in through the viral loop or whatever it may be. The traditional models would be like, we'll just sell to the foreman because they're the ones who have to buy. And then you put all the pressure on salespeople and demos to even get them to take it seriously and to buy into it. Uh, What you're basically describing is that let the actual users themselves prove value through the product. Now the foreman's getting through some freemium model or free trial for a period of time. They might be getting these reports and already seeing the value until now they've got to pay for it to, to continue using it. But you're almost activating the end user side or the consumer side to help you on on the sales front and not putting so much pressure on the company itself to go out and and actually make that claim. So we talked a lot about PLG when it comes to acquisition, but how do you see it working 
And and I'd love to hear a little more how you see PLG working with when it comes to expansion, but also when does the sales team kind of step back in as well? So I think through expansion, there's um, a really interesting opportunity, again, back to that that sort of definition, which is that product-led growth is a go-to-market strategy that relies on the product itself primarily as the driver of customer acquisition, expansion, and conversion. So um, the expansion piece is, you know, that's the the sort of role of a viral loop or of a collaboration loop. Um, and so I, I'll point to one of my portfolio companies, Expensify. So they have this really clever model where when you come in, the first question they ask is, what are you here to do? And you could say, I'm here to submit expenses to somebody else, or I'm here to collect expenses from somebody else. And that very quickly tells you, are you an individual person who just wants to get done with the expense report as fast as possible? Or if you're collecting expenses, maybe you sit in the finance department and you are looking for an expense management solution that integrates to payroll and does all these different things. But by asking that question, it both helps them understand the role of the person that's using, but it also helps to map the organization because there's a follow-up question. So again, if I'm an end user, I'm a sales rep, I have a bunch of expense reports, I hate doing my expense reports, I look for something to solve this pain, and then I find Expensify on the mobile app store, and their tagline is expense reports that don't suck. Uh, you weren't born to do expenses. That's literally their messaging. It's like, wow, you're speaking to me. This is great. Like, I can just take pictures of the receipt and I don't have to do expenses anymore. I can get back to selling. This is amazing. And it asks me that question, are you here to submit expenses? And I say, yes. Then the follow-up question is, who do you submit expenses to? And then that starts to map the organization a little bit of, okay, well, you know, this person's probably in finance because they're receiving the expenses. Now I also have their email address. And that creates an opportunity through the product loops to start sending additional things. And this is where marketing gets involved. Send marketing automation to the you know, person that's been identified through this user journey, right? So there's opportunities through these viral loops, these collaboration loops, and understanding the natural workflow of a product or of a process um, to be able to game that system, so to speak, to drive uh, additional self-service adoption inside an organization. One of the things that we hear about is they don't, people in product don't know how to actually get started doing that because PLG takes, uh, is a multidisciplinary approach. It takes sales, it does take marketing, everybody kind of working together in ways they may not have done before. Um, do you have any advice or any experience working with your portfolio companies on on how you actually start to make that transition structurally from the product owner perspective? Well, the thing you want to do is that you want to become self-serve, right? But if you start at that, that's kind of like starting at level four of uh, you know a multi-step process. Uh, and so if you go straight in and you're in this like, you know, executive meeting and you're like, we need to go self-serve, then what you're going to get is a bunch of reactions and a bunch of uh, sort of um, negative reactions likely um, to why self-service won't work for our industry, why self-service won't work for our company, why self-service won't work for our customer and blah, 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 blah. But if you take it back to level one and really think about it from a first principle standpoint, you need to do an exercise that I call the three PI, product, persona, pain, identification. So what does that mean? Product persona. Um, this is a little bit different than who is the buying persona of your product. So it comes again back to who is the end user and really kind of mapping this out. Identify who is the executive that buys a product like this uh, and then who is the end user that uses it. For the executive, what's the business problem they're looking to solve and what's the ROI that they would associate with solving that business problem or what's the KPI that you could improve? Great, you've identified the executive track. Um, but then if you identify, okay, who is the end user, 
then what you're orienting towards at the end user is a little bit less about that individual person's personal ROI or a KPI that they're going to improve. And instead, it's more about what's the pain that they have in their day-to-day workflow that your product is going to address. And so you need to understand that pain, that annoyance that they experience, and then how could an end user facing version of your product Uh, which might look exactly like your product today or might need to be sort of a modified version of your product, how can it solve that end user pain, right? And getting those, that dual track to where you're, you're really drawing the distinction between executive and end user. And you're not just trying to uh, slap a self-service signup funnel on top of an executive oriented product, which won't work. I think that can help to level set the conversation back down to level one and build from first principles up, right? And then you get to a point where, folks can't really argue with you because it's not my conclusion versus your conclusion. It's like reasoning from first principles up and we're both seeing the same facts and you can't argue with this very logical pattern that we're drawing on who's our end user, how do they experience pain and how can we better address it? So you've established the, the product persona pain identification. You understand you know, how you know, to, to tie it to ROI for the executive, how to tie it to, to pain for the user. Uh, and then is it sort of, okay, from a marketing perspective, here's how it's getting messaged to those two types of groups. From from a user experience, we need features that are primarily for the user, and then we need some reporting capability to the executive. And then from a sales perspective, you know how to talk differently. Is it, or you start there and then sort of figure out how the different roles sort of affect that or sort of take that and execute on it? The The goal is to understand in the customer journey, in the buying journey on your customer's side, at what point do they hit a barrier where they need some human involvement from your side, right? And that could be if you go from a handful of individual users to now you have a small team and they need to go from that individual use case into a small team use case. That sounds like a really great opportunity for a success manager to get in and say, hey, did you know that 10 users at your company are using this um, and you guys aren't utilizing all the features? Let me help you. And at that point, that customer might also want to go from 10 to 20 swiped credit cards to an annual contract. It'll be a small contract, but they still want to go to an invoice. Now you're getting to a point where there is a traditional buying process that's happening inside that organization. But that traditional buying process, like the hard part's already done. They've are, they're already using your product. But how do we go from that next level where it's enterprise-wide deployment and you need to go through the ROI calculator conversation at that point? You need to go through procurement. You need to go through legal. And so the sales rep can get involved at that point to really help navigate a buying process. Um, But it's very different than the old way of sales, which was, I'm going to convince you to buy my product, not my competitors. And so it kind of becomes this more consultative, consigliere sort of relationship of the sales rep with the internal champion, um, where you're sitting on the same side of the table rather than on different sides of the table like in the past. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like the way you're talking about it there too. I think it kind of ties to the consumer demands that you've, you've kind of mentioned. There's also that with software now. It's not just like convincing that you're better, but it's actually providing this like next level service. The concierge, there's always somebody there guiding you. And that seems to dovetail really nicely with, with the product-led growth approach. Join us next week as we dig more into PLG. We'll discuss common misconceptions and how product-led growth impacts Midwest tech. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until then, visit innovatemap.com slash podcast and subscribe to learn how you can take your product to the next level. As always, we're curious, what does better product mean to you? Hit us up on Twitter at InnovateMap 
or shoot us an email at podcast at innovatemap.com. I'm Christian. And I'm Anna. And you've been listening to Better Product. Better Product. <laughs> Drop mic.